You know, every family has its own traditions when it comes to opening Christmas gifts, right? Everyone's got their own traditions. Some of you come from families where everything is opened one at a time, right? Very meticulous, painfully intentional, very slow. Everyone opens one, and then everyone's got to go around and share about how that present makes them feel. It just just takes forever. And then others of you, uh, you open up your presents all at once. It's like a feeding frenzy, right? It's like Black Friday meets the animal planet in your, in your living room. This is what it looks like for you. And so some of you will open presents tonight. How many of you, like my family, will open some presents tonight on Christmas Eve? All right. And then some of you will open all of your presents tomorrow. Some of you do it first thing. Some wait until after breakfast. Often depends on the age of the people in your home as far as when and how the gifts are opened. So there's lots of different traditions, and I think that's great. But when it comes to how we respond once we've opened a gift, I think everyone pretty much agrees on the proper etiquette, right? There's an etiquette to how you respond once you open a Christmas gift. And basically, you have to make it look like on your face, like this gift has just changed your life. Like, this is the greatest gift ever. In fact, isn't that tiring and exhausting after a while to have to bring your emotions to that level every single sweater that you open up? So I'm going to give you the opportunity this morning to get a little practice in because it's, it's coming soon and you've got to get this right because you're going to hurt feelings if you don't. So, so just imagine with me that you just opened a gift and you're not thrilled about it, but you're grateful for it. And uh, you just now turn to the person next to you and give them your, this gift just changed my life face. Amazing, amazing, great. Now, I'm noticing as I'm looking around your faces that none of you have that expression while I'm ever preaching. There's, there's never that sense of, this is wonderful. You know, this, this etiquette of how you respond when you open gifts uh, is especially difficult for children. And my wife and I have three little girls, and my wife is very diligent about prepping them for how they're going to respond when our family gathers to opening gifts. There's some things I know they shouldn't say. Don't say things like, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> like, Frozen is so three years ago. I don't want anymore. Don't say things like, I already have this. Just, we've trained them. If you already have it, we'll figure out how to return it. Just don't say it. Or the biggest one is, close, don't complain about clothes. I think the worst thing that you can say when you open a gift is, what is this? (laughs) What is this? Because it communicates, I didn't ask for it. I probably don't want it. I don't even know what it is. And really what you're saying is, what kind of gift did you give me? What kind of gift is this? Now, as we look at the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke, we see a God who is carrying out his plans and fulfilling his promises. He's keeping his promises. We see a God who sends angels with important messages. We see a God who handpicks a nobody from a non-place to be the mother of the Savior of the world. We see a God who announces the arrival of this God-man in the middle of nowhere to a group of men who belong to the lowest class in society, and we see a God who is born in a barn or in a cave surrounded by animals. And when we look at the story of Christmas, it should cause us to ask this question What kind of God is this? What kind of God is this? And I want to suggest that there isn't a more important question for you and I to wrestle with. What kind of God is this? 
And maybe there's not a better time of the year than this time of the year to do so. So this morning, we're going to find some answers to that question in one of the songs of Christmas, one of the songs that is recorded in the Christmas story. And it's a song sung by a man named Zachariah. Now, let me give you really quickly a crash course on who Zachariah is. Zachariah is married to a woman named Elizabeth. And according to Luke chapter 1, Zachariah and Elizabeth are good people. They're great people. They are righteous before God. But they're also, Elizabeth is barren, and she's older now. So she's never had children, and she's older now. The Bible actually says it this way, that they were advanced in years. That's that's such a nice way of saying you're old, right? Like, let's just use that from now on. I'm advanced in years. Zechariah is a priest, and as a priest, he's responsible to work at times in the temple. And one of the days that he's working in the temple, an angel appears. And an angel in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 says to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth, who's old and barren, advanced in years and barren, will bear a son, and you will call his name John. And he goes on to say some other things about John. Now, Zechariah doesn't believe. He says, I can't, it's impossible. And he says, because I'm old and my wife is advanced in years, which shows you he is a, he's a very smart husband, the way he said that. I'm old, but my wife is advanced in years. And uh, then, because he doesn't believe, the angel says, well, because you didn't believe, you will be mute and deaf until the baby is born. So for the next nine months, mute and deaf. I won't ask the wives in this room how many of you would take that as a Christmas gift this year, but mute and deaf for nine months. Elizabeth conceives, and nine months later, John is born. And in this culture, on the eighth day after the baby was born, they would bring the baby to the temple for two things, for circumcision, if it was a boy, and for the naming of the baby. And in that culture, you always picked a name that's from somewhere in your family's lineage. You never went, nowadays, the names we're coming up with, right, all over the place. My, my, my three-year-old is in a, a pre-K class, and she comes back and tells me the names of her kids in her class, and I think to myself, there's no way she's got that right. That can't possibly be their name. And then I go into her classroom, and sure enough, it's their name. So anything goes for a name now. But back then, you always picked a name that came from a father or grandfather or great-uncle or someone that was in your family's lineage. So when they said Elizabeth on the eighth day, what are you going to name this baby? She said, his name will be John. And everybody tried to talk her out of it. John's not one of your family names. You can't pick John. And so then they said, let's ask Zechariah. Now, meanwhile, Zechariah still can't talk. And so Zechariah takes a tablet, and he writes on the tablet, his name will be John. And as soon as he does that, his tongue is loosed, and he can speak again. And when he speaks, he sings this song, okay? So here's a song we're going to look at together this morning. It's in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 79. Let's read it together. He says, it's on your handout, by the way. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He's talking about the Israelites. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, talking about John now, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, talking about Jesus, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What kind of God is this? Three things we're going to learn this morning. And the first one is this. This is the God who comes for us. This is the God who comes for us. The song in verse 68 and verse 78, did you notice that the song is bookended by the same basic thought, that God's going to visit us? Two times in the song, he says God's visited us right at the very beginning and right at the very end, which tells us this is very important. They don't want anyone to, he doesn't want anyone to miss this. God doesn't want you to miss this this morning, that God is a God who comes for us. God is a God who visits us. Now, um, it's so important that this is the way he goes. Now, one of, the, one of the central doctrines of Christianity, one of the things that we believe and base our faith on is called the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. And the incarnation basically means this, God became human. God became human. God was born in the human flesh. God submitted himself to the human limitations, and God embraced the entire human experience. God came for us. And not only did God come for us, but God became one of us. That's what the incarnation says, that God became man. About eight years ago, my dad wrote an article for the Post Standard entitled, What Christmas Means to Me. I want to read to you what he wrote because this perfectly captures the incarnation. He said, Christmas is about God himself wrapped in human flesh. That God would wrap himself in human flesh. Christmas is about Jesus' mother, Mary, wrapping Jesus in these swaddling clothes. And Christmas is ultimately about Jesus being willing to wrap himself in our sins. This is the incarnation. He wrapped himself in flesh. He was wrapped in the human experience. He was wrapped up with human limitation. He was wrapped up with, with, with grief, with sorrow, a man acquainted with our grief and with our sorrow. But ultimately, he was wrapped up in our sin to pay a price for us, wrapped in burial clothes, ascended to heaven. Now he's wrapped in the glory. So we see this, this incarnation. Now, what is the significance of the incarnation? Why does this doctrine matter? Why do Christians say, you got to believe, you got to agree? This is an important one. Well, a couple things, a couple uh, significances of the incarnation. Number one, it tells us that God keeps his promises, that God keeps his promises. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to waiting, how long is too long? How many of you would say by raising your hands, I'm really good at waiting? That's one of my strengths. I'm a really good, I'm really good at waiting for things. Nobody's raising their hands because really none of us are very good at waiting. How long is too long when it comes to waiting? Well, it sort of depends. How many of you uh, ordered Christmas gifts this year through Amazon? A lot of you, probably, right? We order a majority of our gifts through Amazon. Now, if you have Amazon Prime, you get everything in what? Two days. And so you get used to that, and now when you have to wait for anything to come in the mail longer than two days, it feels like it's too long. Two days is too long. Some of you, if you're out to eat and you order a meal, how long is too long to wait for your meal? 20 minutes? 30 minutes? Depends where you go. How about when you text message somebody? How long is too long to wait for a reply? For some of us, it's seconds. Like, you know, send a question, five seconds later, question mark, five seconds later, angry emoji. You know, just like, are you going to reply or you're not going to reply? Because we're not really good at waiting. Well, listen, when Luke chapter one is written, when all these events happen in Luke chapter one, it's been 400 years since God has spoken to his people. Four hundred years. How long is too long to wait? 
One commentary said this, that the night before the sunrise of Jesus' birth had been very long and very dark. 400 years. According to the scriptures, the people of Israel had been sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is like a caravan that's lost in the desert at night, and they're fearing for their very lives. These are the people of Israel. But Malachi, an Old Testament prophet, the last book in the Old Testament, gives this promise in the concluding lines of the Old Testament, that the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So even though there's been 400 years of darkness, 400 years of silence, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews, are still holding on to this last promise that Malachi gave them, that someday the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And so for over 400 years of darkness, the people were waiting, looking for the sunrise. And when Zechariah hears what the angel has to say, Zechariah bursts into song because he knows it's time. God's keeping his promise. It's been 400 years. It's been a long time. But God always keeps his promises. And Zechariah knew this because the angel himself, his name was Gabriel, the angel himself, according to the text, he quotes Malachi. So when Gabriel quotes Malachi, Zechariah, who was a priest and an expert in Old Testament scripture, immediately knew he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the promised one. So God kept his promise to come for us. He's a God who comes for us. I want you to personalize it this morning for yourself. He's a God who comes for you. He came not just for me, not just for your neighbor, not just for your family member. He came for you. And this idea of God coming for us, it works for us both objectively because it's true, but subjectively because it stirs our hearts that someone would come for us. A few months ago, we got a letter in the mail from Verizon. Verizon is our cable provider. And they said, you get free HBO for the next two months. All right, you know, fine. And so we started to look around. There's not actually a lot to watch on those channels, but it's nice to have the option. And so after the two months, we went back, and it was still there. It's been like four months, and we still have HBO. Now, if you work for Verizon, shh, don't, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say anything. It's a Christmas present. But recently, I was just flipping through, and I am being honest. There's not a lot to watch on those channels. But recently, I was flipping through, and there was a movie that I remembered from when I was a teenager called The Last of the Mohicans. And uh, it came out in 1992, which when I first did the math in my head, I thought, that's a long time ago, 15 years. And then I stopped and go, wait, I was 25 years ago. (laughs) And it's a story about some Native Americans and and, uh, this specific tribe, the Mohicans, and the last remaining members of the tribe. But there's one scene, it's probably the most memorable scene. If you saw the movie, you will remember this scene. And Daniel Day-Lewis, who plays this, uh, he's actually not a Native American, but he was adopted in by the Mohicans as a young man. So now he's one of them. Uh, and he, he has fallen in love with this uh, British young lady, this English lady, and they are running away from another tribe, and they hide behind a waterfall, and they're behind this waterfall, and they have no weapons, they have no way to fight, and the other tribe is very close and very near, and so they realize if we're ever, if we're going to have any hope at all, we actually have to escape, me, my brother, and my dad, we have to escape, we have to leave you here, you're going to get captured, but the best plan for all of us is for you to get captured, let us go and get weapons, we'll come back and we'll rescue you, because if we try to fight them now, we're all going to lose. And so here he is, he's leaving this woman that he loves, and he says to her, stay alive, no matter what, I will find you. And, and that, that's the magic moment in the movies. He's looking her in the eye and says, I will find you. And with those piercing eyes, you know he's going you know to find her. And when you see that scene, something in our heart stirs because we're like, man, I wish somebody felt that way about me. <laughs> I wish somebody was coming for me. 
I wish somebody had that sort of passion to chase me down and to rescue me and to find me. And in the Christmas story, that's exactly what we have. A God who said, I'm coming for you. No matter where you go, no matter what you've done, no matter how tied up you are, no matter how bound up you are, no matter how addicted you are, no matter where you find yourself this morning, he says, I'll find you. I'm coming for you because he's the God who comes for us. The incarnation means that God kept his promise, but the incarnation also means this. God didn't love us from a distance. He didn't love us from a distance. He came to visit us. This visit means that God made his way to us and not vice versa. See, every other religion says, you find your way to God. You figure out how to get to God. Christianity stands alone in saying, no, 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 no. You couldn't get to God. You can't do it. God came to you. And it's this great reversal. It also means that when God visited us, it means that he's not ashamed of us. He's not embarrassed of us. He's not unwilling to be associated with us. There's a show on Netflix right now called The Crown, which is a historical fiction retelling of the life of Queen Elizabeth II. In one of the episodes in the second season, they tell a story that happened in August of 1957. I didn't, I didn't know any of this because I'm not really a history expert, so this is all feels brand new to me as I watch it. But there was a journalist named Lord Altrincham, and he listened to one speech that Queen Elizabeth II gave over the radio, and he wrote a scathing article about how out of touch the castle, the crown, the, roy- the royalty was with the real people in England. And now, nowadays, it's no big deal for a journalist to write a scathing rebuke of our leadership. That happens all the time. But back then, it was a really big deal. He basically was making the argument that the Queen's court is too upper class, upper class. it's too British, and instead, he advocated for a more classless, not classless as in like you got no class, but classless in a, not a hierarchy, of a commonwealth court. He's just one writer, but he brought so much change, actually, to the British government. Queen Elizabeth herself ended up meeting with him to get some ideas from him as far as how do you think we should do this. And one of the things that he suggested was you need to start inviting common people into Buckingham Palace and meet them in person. There was a significant divide between royalty and the commoner. And so as a result, they began to do that. And there's one scene in this episode where Queen Elizabeth II and her mother are staring out the window of Buckingham Palace at a lineup of normal people like you and me who are waiting to come in. And they're bracing themselves to meet normal people. And they're cringing a little bit. And they're learning, this guy's a, this guy's a fighter, he's a boxer, and I'm going to shake his hand, and he's going to come into Buckingham Palace. And they're like, right before they open the doors for them to come in, they kind of take a big breath like they're bracing for something really terrible. You get this glimpse of the mentality sometimes of people who have power and influence versus people who don't. But when we see our God, he doesn't stand up in heaven looking through a window down at us going... That person, I got to welcome them in to my house? He didn't do that. He ran to us. That's what the incarnation says. He left his throne to come to us. God didn't keep his distance from commoners. He's not ashamed to associate with us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost. He loves the neglected. He loves the unseemly. He loves the excluded. He loves the weak. And he loves the broken. This is the God who comes for us. Now, for some people, this idea of God becoming man is a problem. Like, it just, it, virgin birth, 
Impossible. God becoming man, impossible. How could that happen? And I understand that perspective if you don't allow for any sort of supernatural influence in the history of humankind. Like if, you're, if you believe in naturalism, which basically means that the only things, the only forces at work in our world are natural forces. There's no such thing as a supernatural force. Well, if that's your view, then I sort of understand. This doesn't make sense. But if you have any room in your worldview at all for the possibility that there's a God, that there's something supernatural at work, then this is not really that big of a deal. Because if you're going to believe in a God, then the idea of a virgin birth, the idea of God becoming man, is actually not that challenging of a thing to believe. Because if there's a God, then really anything is possible. So we have this God who comes for us. The second thing that we learn in this song is that we not just have a God who comes for us, but we have a God who forgives us. This idea of forgiveness, Zechariah said he's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And this is not theoretical knowledge of forgiveness of sins. This is a personal experience of the forgiveness. It's an inward experience of salvation as a result of a divine gift that includes the forgiveness of sins. And this is what the gospel offers. This is what the Christmas story offers is the forgiveness of sins for all of us who hope and trust in Jesus. Real, authentic forgiveness, the real deal. Two things about real forgiveness. First thing is this. Real forgiveness can only be offered by the offended party. Agree? Real forgiveness can only be offered and extended by the person who you hurt or offended, right? If I go up and slap Mac in the face and then ask Ray to forgive me, I mean, he may say, no, fine, you're forgiven. But who do I actually need to go to? I need to go to Mac because he's the one that I've struck. He's the one that I've offended. And so real forgiveness can only be offered by the offended party, which is why God needed to extend forgiveness to his people, because all sin, all the sin in our lives is ultimately not against each other, although it is at times, but is first against God. It's us choosing ourselves over him. It's us choosing our way over his way. It's us placing our trust in something instead of our placing our trust in him. John Stott said it this way, the essence of sin, listen to this, this is a great quote, the essence of sin is man substituting, substituting himself for God. The essence of sin is man or woman substituting himself or herself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Isn't that good? Sin is us trying to take God's place. Salvation is because God came to earth and took our place. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. That's why we sin. But then God sacrifices himself for man, and God puts himself where only man deserves to be. And that's why we have salvation. So real forgiveness can only be given by the offended party. But the second thing about real forgiveness is this. Real forgiveness always costs something. It always costs something. It always costs someone. See, sometimes people ask this question about Christianity. Couldn't God just have forgiven our sins without Jesus going to the cross? I mean, did, he, did that really need to happen? Did someone really have to pay that cost? Did he really need to suffer? I mean, he's God. Why can't he just wave his magic wand and say, you're forgiven? And the reason why he can't and the reason why he didn't is because no one just forgives. Real forgiveness always costs someone or something. Let me, let me give you an illustration. If you were to drive your car into my house, right, crash your car into my house, and you get out of your car, you got half your car in my dining room, and you get out of your car, and you're like, oh, David, wow, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Now, if I say, no, I do not forgive you, you're going to bear 
the expense of replacing everything that you just did. You're going to endure and carry the, the cost and the loss. But now watch this. If I say to you, yes, I forgive you. Just get in your car, drive away. Don't ever come down my street again. Just, just go and don't even worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're forgiven. Now, did I just forgive? Did the cost and the loss magically disappear? Where did it go? It came to me. If I just forgive him, I still, if I'm going to get back what I had, I still have to bear the cost and the loss of that myself. Now, that's, that's a practical thing. Let's talk about when someone hurts your feelings. Can you just forgive somebody who hurts your feelings or wronged you without someone bearing the cost of the loss? Well, let's imagine this. I'm sure no one in this room has ever had their feelings hurt, and I'm sure no one in this room has ever hurt anyone's feelings. But just pretend. If you hurt someone's feelings and you say, or someone hurts your feelings and says, I apologize, I'm sorry. If you say, no, I do not accept your apology, you are not forgiven, here's what you're saying. You bear the loss of this relationship. You bear the loss of trust. You bear the cost of enduring my scorn and my neglect. You bear it. That's when you say no. But if I say yes, I forgive you for hurting my feelings. Here's what I'm saying. I'm going to bear the loss of the opportunity to hurt you back. I'm going to bear the loss of making you feel miserable the rest of your life about what you did. You see what I'm saying? No one, no one just forgives. When you forgive, someone always bears the cost or the loss. So Jesus came to earth to seek and save the lost and to offer forgiveness. And guess what? It cost him. And it had to cost him because only through his shed blood can we be forgiven of our sins. And sin is not just action. Sin is not just bad behavior. Sin is not just making mistakes. Sin is trusting in anything more than Jesus, building the foundation of your life on anything, even good things, more than Jesus. That's sin. And so we needed Jesus to come into this world. The Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, said this, Christ Jesus, he said, this is a sure statement. Bet your life on this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. Now, was Paul the worst sinner in the world at that point? He wasn't, actually. He was a very godly man. He was a leader in the church. This was far in, This is near the end of his life. What was he saying? He's saying, when you really understand That sin is not just making mistakes and saying a bad word and lusting after this and losing your temper here. But sin is actually in any moment of any time of any day placing your heart's deepest affections and your mind's attentions and placing your hope and trust in something other than Jesus. Saying, if I just had that, then my life would be worth living. If I just had that extension onto my home, if I just had that job, uh, if I just had that job instead of this job, if I just had that person, if I had their family instead of my family, if I had that person's present instead of the, the present I got. Anytime we find our hearts doing that, and let's be honest, our hearts do that a lot, that's an indicator that we're trusting and hoping in something more than Jesus. And I don't say that to put all sorts of uh, guilt on you. I say that to say this. Jesus came to bear the cost of all of that. He came to provide uh, a sacrifice so that we wouldn't have to carry our sin. So, so we've, we've learned so far that this is a God who co- comes for us. This is the God who forgives us. And then the last thing this morning we're going to close is this. This is the God who is for us. This is the God who is for us. Now, one of the names you, of, for God that you hear a lot at Christmas time is Emmanuel. There's songs. You've probably heard it. Emmanuel literally means God is with us. And that's Jesus coming to earth as a human. But God isn't just with us. God is for us. 
And here's what I mean. God did some things for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Verse 74, it said in Zechariah's song, that we've been delivered from the hand of our enemies that we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him for all of our days. Now, how are we going to serve God in holiness and righteousness for all of our days? How are we going to approach God without any fear? Because we're not perfect. We don't always get it right. We're not always holy. We're not always righteous. Well, God came to live for us and to die for us. He came to live for us. So how do we have holiness and righteousness? Because Jesus has made us holy and righteous, and he's making us holy and righteous. So this is what it means for you this morning. You are free to be righteous all of your days, not because you get it right all the time, but because Jesus lived the life you should have lived, and his perfect performance record is credited to you when you hope and trust in him. But Jesus didn't just live for us, he died for us. It says that we've been delivered from the hand of our enemies that we might be free from fear. Well, how can we ever be free from fear? We're free from fear because Jesus took our worst fears upon himself. The hopes and fears of all the world are met in thee tonight. What kind of God is this? This is a God who comes for us. This is a God who forgives us. And this is a God who is for us. And this morning, I want to ask you to consider the truth that this is true for you. St. Augustine said this, God loves us as if there were only one of us. God loves us as if there was only one of us. God loves you as if, you know, loves humankind, of course, but he loves you. And he came for you. And he wants to forgive you. And he is for you. And I want to encourage you this morning as we close to put your hope and trust in Jesus, to look to him and see him for who he is, not just a baby in a wooden manger. His life began in a wooden manger, but eventually he ended up laid not just in a wooden manger, but he was laid upon a wooden cross as a sacrifice for all of humanity that we might have a way home, that we might have a way to him. Let's bow our heads together in prayer this morning.